The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. I think someone was watching us definitely that weekend. Carol felt that way more than me. I didn't really feel someone was watching me. Carol felt like someone was watching her. We were driving through campus on Phil and drove past the house. And I said, God almighty, I feel so bad for her family and so forth. You know, and to this point, I didn't know that he knew her or whatever, you know. I had no suspicions, anything. Says she's an effing bitch. And I looked up, I remember, I looked up in the rearview mirror. Did you hear that? He said, oh, you knew her? And he said, oh, yeah, she's a bitch. Did he do it? The truth is worth knowing. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofsted. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. I was a Palmer, and they used to have camps for the Palmer. My junior year, we had one at Illinois State University. And we stayed in the dorms at Waterson Towers. Oh my gosh, you know, I never really stayed on a college campus. And I was like, oh my God, this was so cool, and the campus was cool. And I think that's when it really happened that I fell in love with ISU. I still have my ISU phone directory. It was bound to be the best time of her life, especially after joining a sorority. My house? Mm-hmm. Good-looking, good-looking party girls. Let's have fun. How do you reconcile the loss of a friend at such a young age? I remember the burial plot. I remember greeting her parents at the visitation. How do you reconcile returning to college with someone missing? I swore I would never go back to that campus. The day I graduated, I was done. I was like, I'm not living with this nightmare anymore. I have to go forward. How do you reconcile almost 50 years without answers? You know what? I got him. It was so sad. (laughs) After she died, I got a Christmas card from her. It's just And it was even postmarked the day she died. And I just, I've saved it, but it still hurts me so bad to look at Oh, my God. The women of Delta Zeta are still nursing 
unhealed wounds. Of course, I married and had children, and they're little, and even though it's still in my mind, and I've never forgotten it. You know, when they were little, I could get through it. But, you know, I'm older now, and they're not little, and I just, um, it, it'll never leave my mind. It'll never leave my mind. I knew from the beginning it's been him all along. We all want this result. One of the things that they told me then, though this has not been confirmed, every city that had lived in from that point in time, um, there were three or four cities where they had found girls that were murdered in a very, I'm going to say, brutal way. And I said, are you kidding me? And you have not been able to go to that city and get more evidence and find that it's him? They went, no, they've never been able to put any of that together. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so Chapter 8. That would be harassment. I'm not going to hit record until we, uh, we're all in place. All right. We are all here. Allie, let me ask you about how you found the story in the first place. I took an investigative journalism class at DePaul and we had to go out and find a story basically. My professor recommended I look at unsolved cases on different websites and that's when I came across Carol's case because it was listed on the Illinois State Police website as the oldest unsolved case in Illinois. From there, I reached out to a Chicago Tribune reporter who had written about George because he was investigating the case, and his name was um, Ted Gregory. Ted Gregory, that's who it is. And he'd written a book on a different murder, and he kind of connected George and I. So we did the little uh, pull up to each other in Starbucks and exchange files. And he gave me all that. And then we kind of just went from there. I did my story for class. I interviewed George. And then from there, we decided to keep working together on it. But initially, it was just a quick story for an investigative journalism class. And that was going to be it. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, George, give us, give us a quick summary of how you found it in 08. I was... Um... I was the director of the law enforcement program at Morton College and had been for some time. I taught a wide variety of law enforcement courses and in criminal investigation and cold case investigation. So um, in my cold case investigation class, I did exactly what Allie's professor did. And I, I told my people, go out and find a case and maybe we can fool around with it and do some good. I always felt in my unconscious that 
that I had met Carol before, so to speak, but I couldn't figure out why. Chapter 2 It was probably 75 or 6. Somebody from Normal called Chicago at the detective headquarters and said, do you have somebody to go check somebody and see if you can find this guy? Somebody came in with the composite sketch, and then I said, okay, now now I get it. Then we got a picture of him from the newspaper. I said, I looked for that guy 30 freaking years ago. So we, we got an address for this guy in downtown LaGrange, Illinois, which is basically 14 miles southwest of downtown Chicago. We were able to find out from the uh, from the landlord that uh, this guy lived there, and of course the guy turned out to be. And so we we gathered a pretty a pretty in depth file, and um, I can I contacted the normal police and told them who I was and what we had, and um, I was hoping they would do what I had been doing for many years and to uh, work as sort of like a murder task force and combine efforts in order to try to get the case solved. Well, well, silly me. They were inhospitable to say the least. They also were uh, untruthful. They said that they, know, they knew who the two people were. One was dead in Tennessee and one was alive in Tennessee. And of course, we know who those people are now. They also told me that was conclusively cleared um, after after interrogation and after a polygraph test that he uh, he came back clean on the polygraph test and so on. Um, retrospectively, we know now after what we've been doing since a year ago, March that um, none, none of that was in fact true. The lead investigator on the case um, told, told me on two different occasions that A, they never, uh, they never got to sit down with them and talk to them about the case. So he was never interrogated actually in, in any way, shape or form. And he absolutely positively never submitted to a polygraph test, never, never took a test, never passed a test. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the July attack. Chapter 1, Mr. Green Jeans. When she was attacked that summer in 74, she said, can you come over and spend the night with me? And I said, sure, whatever you want me to do, you know. The last person to turn out a light the attack came a half an hour later. The back door had a window and um, just broke the window. I think the door was even unlocked, if I understand correctly. First, they tried to break into the basement through like one of those casement windows, but couldn't get in. And I just fallen asleep. And, and then I heard this blood-curdling scream, and I ran out of my bedroom door, and right across was Carol. Her face was all bloodied. And aren't we all in agreement that July was 
in fact the same attacker? I am. The sorority sisters I spoke to, they agree with that hands down. Every single person I spoke to. I think there's a very limited number of freaks in a, in a small town, college town, at any time like that. And um, the, main, the main reason that I think that is because we're dealing with a maniac, number one. But number two, uh, there was nothing random about, about the home invasion at the, in the sorority house. Uh, he, had, he had been inside the building. He knew, he knew his way around. He had the best of all motives. And um, I would also comment briefly that um, they treated this, uh, this incident like a bloody nose and nothing more. Um, they did nothing forensically. They, they, did, they did absolutely nothing. Um, if this had taken place in a major, with a major police department, uh, home invasion is a home invasion and it's a, it's a forcible felony and a, actually a class X felony. Allie, let me ask you about when you were able to pull um, our suspect's criminal record. Did that reinforce to you even more that uh, 74 and 75 were related? Yeah, I mean, the nature of the crimes, when I kind of read the descriptions a little bit, even just the charges, it's like, okay, this is a little too um, coincidental. And I think, I mean, are there really coincidences? Who knows? But once you find out a suspect has this kind of criminal history and it's this lengthy, that's just another clue that you could be looking at the right person or you're on the right track. Since I had been arrested um, in the year prior, twice, um, one attack on a woman, another attack on a guy, um, they they were aware of his presence in the community. Um, I'm I'm quite sure, and so their argument always was that they were dismissive of the home invasion because Carol never saw the offender's face. Sometimes, um, you know, there are pieces of an identification that can tell you absolutely positively that you're on the right uh, you're on the right track and you're looking at the right person from a partial description um, in in uh, our episode seven they said unequivocally that that the dirty combat boots and the khaki green clothes and the semi the military stuff and everything else was 24-7 attire uh, and like a trademark for <laughs> Hypothetically, had they not known about <laughs> or were not aware of them, although they should have been at the time of the home invasion, certainly um, 17 months later or whatever when Carol was killed um, and, the, and the name popped up immediately from 50 different sources, um, they should have been able to put two and two together.
presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. So let's talk about motive. My impression is that ego is so huge that he had to be president. He had to be in control. If anyone questioned his authority or manlyhood or whatever in any way, that triggered the rage. And of course, we know about the encounter in the stairwell and the fact that Carol was in his sights from that moment on. He, w- he was pissed, very quickly pissed. Number one, he was obsessed with blonde women, particularly. And number two, um, he he didn't like no. In, in the Pam Friedman attack six weeks after Carol was killed, it was the same thing again. He uh, walked up to her from behind, put his arm around her as though they were going together and said, hi, honey. And she said, get the F away from me. And he tried to kill her. So, um, you know, that that's a pattern of behavior. And um, for those two things to have happened six weeks apart, and, uh, you know, it's, it's as, as uh, my good friend Allie just got through saying, you know, um, I, don't, I don't believe in coincidences. Think about it. How many college students are there really with this many three, four battery cases against them? To me, um, possibly the, the most uh, telling thing about any of this is the um, is the rearview mirror story in uh, in, episode, in episode seven? Chapter seven, the rearview mirror. A previous student association president by the name of Scott Nixon, he was killed in an accident. He was hit by a semi. A lot of people from ISU were going to go. Henry arranged that I would drive, of course, that he and would ride with me in the back seat. And this sorority gal, uh, she was like Panhell president, Jackie would ride with us in in the front seat with me. We were driving through campus on Phil and drove past the house. And I said, man, what's, what about this? You know, and to this point, I didn't know that he knew her or whatever, you know? I had no suspicions, anything. God almighty, I feel so bad for her family and so forth. And says, she's an effing bitch. We, we have an independent witness who, who knew as well as anyone on that campus. When they passed by and the, the other three people in the car were talking about, oh, isn't that sad? And um, he said, I knew her, she was a fucking bitch. And, uh, and the look on his face. His, his eyes uh, had popped out of his head. Uh, the, 
He was, his neck was bright red and he was in full rage. The uh, follow-up on that is after they arrived at their destination in the car. I looked up in the rearview mirror and made eye contact with Henry. Without any hesitation at all, Henry said, if she pissed him off, he killed her. Um, the unusual characteristics of this murder. I'm going to start with the... Uh, the pantyhose pulled down. What do you think, Allie? I know you, you're convinced that, that there possibly was an actual sexual assault and not just a staged one. I'm convinced that there was some type of sexual assault or at least attempted sexual assault just because of the fact that she was found the way she was. In terms of the law, maybe it wasn't a rape, but it was still a sexual assault. By pulling down someone's pants and any kind of touching, that's a sexual assault. That's what the law says. Let me also remind everyone that, you know, for what it's worth, there was DNA on the pantyhose and the slip. Yeah, what it was, we don't know, but there was DNA. I have my own ideas about this. There are a whole lot of, of uh, serial killers who um, gain a great deal of their rage by their own lack of ability to perform sexually. I've, I've talked to about 200 people about and there isn't one person who, who has one word to say about anything to do with his ever having any kind of normal relationship with a female person um, is, you know, as far, as far as dating or, or anything like that. I do have my own ideas about this. The original plan might have been to, uh, to have a completed sexual offense, um, but see, I, I, I had always talked about the fact that I, that I thought that this was a humiliation deal. But then, when we went to Chicago, invariably we ended up, and not just in bars, but in strip clubs. On one of their trips to Chicago for a conference, there was some kind of lap dancing going on or whatever else. But the dancer took to a private room. He either was disinterested in having the sex or he was impotent. That fits in perfectly with with what I think happened um, on, on the grounds of the sorority house when Carol was killed. And then there's this story from episode six. A man went to police years after the fact, saying he had been sent on a stalking mission. Here's George telling the story. So in 2017, I went to my lawyer and I said, hey, um, I used to have amnesia. Amnesia. <laughs> but I don't, guess what? I don't have amnesia anymore. And I remember some stuff. Yeah, what I remember is that um, two guys took me to um, the cellar 
and said, peek in there and see if, if the waitress is in there. Because we want to have sex with her to teach her a lesson. And so I did that and I went in there and then I rethought the whole thing. And I said, I'm going home. I don't want to have sex with somebody that doesn't want to have sex. And so, see you later, and he's gone. Then he he goes on to say that all of this, this stalking party to the cellar took place um, during, during Christmas break, uh, a couple of days before Carol got murdered. Well, the only person on earth that I could think of that would want to teach Carol a lesson would be all of these things that we have talked about in terms of motive and accessibility uh, would lead one to logically think that he was talking about the only purpose that I can imagine in a million years to come to the police with the entire story about the amnesia and all these other aspects is because he's involving for the first time. Then he does a quick 180 and he whips out the names of two other guys that were involved in the student senate and none of it related to either of those people. Uh, I should also add that the, the police report says that he was sobbing and crying during the course of this conversation. And don't forget the woman who came forward with suspicions about her boyfriend. Carol's mother knew the story. Let's see, how shall I say that? Um, Chapter 5. The, there was a girl, I think, that lived next door that was sort of a mental person? Yes. Now, is, was that one, was she married to one of those two people? The guy who unequivocally positively knows who killed Carol is he's the dude that lived 50 feet from the sorority house when the crime was committed. He came home to his girlfriend covered with blood and, and sweat about an hour after the crime had actually been committed. If there's a Shakespearean fatal flaw from which they could never recover, was she was blown off. You know, I could, I could take a bunch of 10-year-old kids and say, a crime happened here and a lady got hurt. And... A guy who lived 50 feet away came home with covered blood. What do you think? And if there were 50 kids, fifth grade kids, that were asked that question, everyone would say, go knock on the frickin' door and take him to the police station. He was given a polygraph test. He blew it up off the charts. And... Um, they said, uh, they said, dude, we, you know, we know, we know that you failed the test. 
um, you better start talking to us about this. Said, okay, let's make a deal. I will tell you everything you want to know if you grant me immunity. No. This is off the charts for dumb. Because what if he did it? You send him right back to another polygraph test, and you ask the question. Did you have an instrumental part in the actual death of Carol Rothstadt? And there's no way, there's no way in the world that would have said that he would do this, in my opinion, if if he had an instrumental part in it. I thought from from that moment on that what actually happened was that he was kind of like the lookout because he lived out there and uh, they after the stalking thing they picked up on Carol they followed they followed her they followed her home but he knows who did it today but the problem is nobody's approaching him because at this point there's there's no hammer on his shoulders to tell the truth we're running out of time because everybody who was alive during that time is either getting older they've already passed away or they're not coming forward to speak the clock is still ticking Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. Allie, the stolen murder weapon, that was presented to you as a true story, right? Not as a myth, not as a as a suspicion, and then it was up to us to actually prove it, right? Chapter 4. Where's the weapon? I have one question about an item that is actually listed, and it's just kind of a weird entry. Some of the records we got through Freedom of Information provided a hint. Um, third from the bottom... It talks about two Polaroids of exhibit number four before and after original package removed. And like exhibit number four is the piece of wood with red stuff on it. So I'm assuming it's the murder weapon. The only normal police officer who spoke with us early on the record was forthcoming. Do you guys keep like an updated evidence list? I guess I'm just wondering like where that evidence would be. It's all... It's all, it's you guys all. still and keep it, vault, right? Because yeah. it's an and, open case. Yes. And yeah. from what I understand, and I can't speak 100% to it, mm-hmm. there are, throughout the years, I've, I don't know for a fact, but I've heard that there was some issues with evidence mm-hmm. at times. I would love to meet the cop that gave the murder weapon away to the college professor. We still don't know the professor who had it, but we did figure out that it was presented in classrooms at ISU, and there had been rumors about it, but that's never been publicly discussed.
there's another horrific aspect of that as well. The detective told me he also took the skull of a murder victim of a 13-year-old kid that got murdered on the railroad tracks. And um, the then chief of police who had come to uh, normal from some town in Indiana said, you have to bring the skull back, but you don't have to bring the, uh, the murder weapon back. I've been doing this thing in one form since, or another since 1969. When a particular suspect surfaces, one of the things that you do is you talk to everybody who might have knowledge about the suspect, because maybe somebody said something to somebody or somebody heard something or whatever else. In, in 99.5% of the cases that I work like this, which is in the numbers in the scores of hundreds, usually there's a cross-section of responses. Well, I don't know, Another someone else will say, you know, I always thought that guy was kind of creepy or weird. And the third person would say, nah, he wouldn't have done that. I talk, I, I talk to so many people about this whole deal, and I can assure you that I didn't walk into this case to try to prove that committed the crime. I, I did this to find out the truth and to get the, the, the actual offender charged with the crime. But without exception, and I mean literally without exception, not... When, when I would mention the name in connection with, with crimes on campus and crimes against women, I did not have one nay vote among hundreds. Everybody said that he was absolutely insane, he was a raging maniac, and he, he, he had this, this horrible complex about dealing with women. He was like a small child that he could not, he could not stop rattling his high chair every time somebody said no to him about anything. He was, he, he was an absolute eminent danger. At the time of the Carol Robstadt murder, the law was that with reasonable grounds and probable cause, you could pick somebody up for investigation. And that at that point, you would have approximately 48 hours to hold them and to try to investigate and so on. Um, the laws have changed somewhat since then, but at the for the first 20 years of this, uh, this whole clown college investigation that went on, um, they, they, never, they never even knocked on his door and said, sorry, you've got to come with us. Through all of our research, we were never able to find any sort of official statement from Illinois State University. So we asked for one. Thank you for the notice about the forthcoming podcast. 
The 1975 murder of Illinois State University student Carol Rofsted was devastating for her family, friends, classmates, and the entire university. The passage of time will not have eased the pain for those who knew her as her case remains unsolved. The death of any young person with so much of their life ahead of them is painful and difficult to comprehend. The thoughts of the Illinois State University community remain with Carol's family and friends as they continue to seek answers about her death. And the university added, in the course of your research, you may have already contacted the normal police department. They were the investigating agency at the time and may have more information on the matter. If, if we have an opportunity to do some more work on this case and present something else at some further time, uh, one of the big things that needs to be looked at more is the possibility that, uh, that the president himself at Illinois State University or one of his henchmen um, reached out to the police department and said, kill this thing because the, the publicity is going to cost us enrollment. Possibly the first, first person that I ever spoke to on this entire case after I met um, my teammates here um, was first attorney uh, on the uh, Pam Friedman case. And um, he says that he spoke to a detective a year or two after the crime. The chance conversation must have been at least a year, two years later. Uh, I spoke to a, an acquaintance who was a, a police detective, and uh, something about the Ralston matter came up. And I said, uh, is in, are, you, are you still investigating? Did you talk to him? And they said, no, no, no. And he said in a sarcastic tone, oh, no. That would be harassment. That would be harassment. We couldn't do that. Next, on Carol's Last Christmas. If this small-town police force was over its head in the 1970s, consider what's happened since. The Illinois Supreme Court heard arguments Thursday from Alan Beeman, who was trying to sue police in Normal for their role in his wrongful conviction. Beeman says police in the town of Normal conspired to frame him. Not many people ever want to stand up about anything. Most people are terrified of, of all things to do with what we have been talking about for the last year and a half. It's a very, very dark place to live. Every year on the anniversary of her birthday or her death, there's many of us that stay in touch to this day. And it's been since 1975, you just can't move beyond that. You can't. And I believe everything you hear. Oh, I'm worse than the shame I do. A beautiful nightmare, the usual fanfare.
Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladimos. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kaladimos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kaladimos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.